Hey Hope Brooklyn, my name is Ryan Diaz and I'm so excited to be with you this Sunday getting to read from God's Word together as a church family. My wife and I, Janice, we're new to the community and we're so thankful that you guys have received us with such love and such care amidst this season of COVID. It's an honor to be on staff and be a part of this amazing, amazing church family. Thank you for receiving us. You know, when Russ went on sabbatical, he invited us into a series where we were going to explore our first love, that, that spark, that, that flame that you first felt when you put your faith in Jesus, that, that thing that drew you to Christ, that, th that thing that made you desire Him all the more. And as we've been going through these weeks, from our very own Bryant to our litany of guest speakers, each has encouraged us to seek after that first love, to, to reorient us and reacquaint us with our first love. But as the series comes to a close, you know, I begin to think, what do we do when we begin to lose our first love? What do we do when the fire begins to go out. What causes the fire of our first love to begin to be extinguished? And as I began to reflect on this, began to think on this, I began to realize that often what causes our first love to begin to dwindle, what often causes our first love to begin to grow faint, is when there's a disconnect between what we believe about God and what we see in our world around us. You know, we all know this feeling in microcosm. We all know the feeling of waking up on a Christmas morning, having our list all listed out, knowing exactly which presents we want. All the run down the stairs, get to the tree, unwrap the gifts, and discover nothing we wanted was in the box. It's a letdown. Why are we let down? Because what we thought was going to happen did not see fruition. The promise and the hope of revelation, there's a disconnect between the two and we are let down and we feel the weight of doubt. Because doubt begins to creep in when we begin to consider why does my world, why do what I believe about reality, about God, why does it not seem to line up with what I see? If we're honest, this season we're in, in 2020, could shake the faith of even the most influential Christian. Between a global pandemic, the reoccurring reality of people of color, African Americans being murdered, in the streets of our country, the, the ever-growing wealth gap where the rich seem to get richer and the poor seem to get poorer. We begin to look at the world around us and we even begin to look at our own personal lives. Maybe one of you guys, you just lost a job. Maybe it's a death in the family. We begin to look at our lives around, we begin to read about the good God we believe about in the Bible and there is a disconnect. And we begin to think, if God is good, then why does the world look like this? If God is good, then why did she pass away from COVID? If God is good, if God is here, if he is present, then why? And it's this disconnect. It's this doubt, this disconnect between what we believe and what we see begins to sow doubt into our souls. And all of a sudden, bit by bit, our first love, that faith we once held dear, begins to grow cold. 
What do we do when we begin to lose our first love? How do we combat the doubt that threatens, threatens our faith, that threatens to take out the thing we hold dear, the thing we've built our lives upon? Well, here's the good news. God, in his infinite wisdom and his mercy, inspired a psalmist named Asaph to tell us about his own journey through what scholars and theologians and most specifically a man named Saint John of the Cross called the Dark Night of the Soul. The Dark Night of the Soul is described as a time where Christ seems absent and God seems distant if not existent at all. And it's in these moments the psalmist Asaph invites us into his own journey through the dark night of the soul to guide us and to show us what we are to do when we're faced with the doubts brought on by the disconnect between what we believe about God and what we see in the world. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up to Psalm 70. Three. We're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to work our way through this psalm and work our way through Asaph's journey through the dark night of the soul and see the questions he wrestled with, the doubts he fought with, and learn how he faced them and discovered God all the more. St. John of the Cross, who I just mentioned, he had this famous quote. He said, in the dark night of the soul, bright flows the river of God. And so I believe today, many of us facing very real doubts because of what we see around us, that even in this moment, in this season, in this time, we can find the river of God and find refreshment and revitalization for our first love. Let's read Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Asaph begins his prayer. He begins his song. He begins his psalm with an exhortation. He says, surely God is good to Israel. This is what Asaph believed about reality. This is what Asaph believed about God. He believed in a God who was good to his people. He believed in a God who took care of his people. He believed in the covenant promises Yahweh, the God of Israel, made with his people. He believed in a God who created a good creation, who called a people to himself, and that he would be their God and they would be his people. Asaph believed in the promises of God. He believed in the goodness of God. He believed in the justice of God. But then there's that but. It notes for us there's a change in thinking. And he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My, my steps had nearly slipped. You get this image of someone climbing a mountain, climbing a hillside, and all of a sudden, the, the dirt and the gravel and the rock begin to give way under their feet. What does this tell us? Asaf, he's, he's actually describing for us what we're experiencing when we face doubt. Asaf is describing the feeling when we go out into the world and we look at the problems around us and then we think back to what we believe about God and doubt begins to creep in and the very sure foundation we once held begins to crumble beneath our feet. Why? Why has Asaf's one sure position 
in his trust in the God of Israel. Why has that began to slip? He says at verse 3, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, There are no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. They are not played like other men. Therefore, pride serves them as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, the people of God return here, and the waters of a full cup are drained by the wicked. And they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in their riches. Asaph is looking at the world around him. And he's thinking back. He's saying, surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to Israel. Then all of a sudden, he's looking at it around him. He says, wait a minute. It doesn't look like God is good to Israel. Matter of fact, it looks like the wicked. It looks like the people who are anti-God. It looks like the people who aren't following God's ways, who aren't walking in his steps. It looks like those people are literally getting away with murder. It looks like the rich get richer, the, the people who conspire and who use conceit to get what they want. It looks like they're getting blessed. If we're honest, we look at our world around us and it looks like the wicked get blessed. It looks like injustice runs rampant. And we're kind of like, God, really? We believed you were the one who are good to Israel. We, we, we believed you were the one who's going to rescue and redeem your people. And it seems like your people suffer and the wicked and evil gets away carte blanche and Satan gets to do his thing. God, what's going on? No wonder Asaph's feet almost slipped. No wonder some of us in this community today, our feet are slipping. Because we're looking at deaths and murder of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. We're, we're looking at the, the rampant, raging thing that is COVID-19. We're looking at the state of the division in our country down the aisle, right and left, bitterly opposed. We're looking at the evil that transpires in our world, and we're saying, surely God is good. Sure, can God be good? if these are the things that are happening around us. And Asaf, he's feeling these tensions. We are feeling these tensions. And it's these tensions, it's these doubts that cause our feet to begin to slip. It's these doubts that begin to quench the fire of our soul. Our first love, that passion we used to have, begins to dwindle and drain because doubt has begun to set in. Let's keep reading. Asaf continues, verse 13. He says, Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands of innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Asaf, he's wrestling now. And he's beginning to realize, he's beginning to think that, wait, has all this been worth it? 
has faithfulness to God been worth it? Has, has keeping my heart pure been worth it? Has doing the right thing been worth it? Has pursuing God been worth it? Many of us, we're looking at the world around us and it seems like the wicked get away with what they want to get away with and it seems like evil has its day and we're beginning to wonder like is this worth it is this following Jesus worth it is this carrying my cross worth it like really God did I sign up for a joke did I sign up for something that's non-existent because apparently this isn't working God apparently it seems like I've washed my heart in vain I've washed my hands in vain God are you really good to your people because it doesn't seem like it I'm suffering I'm going through it my family is a mess all this is happening around me my community is in shambles God are you truly good to your people Asaf begins to question his vocation as a follower of Yahweh. We begin to question our vocations as followers of Jesus. We begin to wonder if this has been worth it, if our sufferings have been worth, worth it, if our sacrifices for the sake of the good news about Jesus have been worth it. This is the doubt that has begun to quench our first love. This is the doubt that has begun to put out the fire. This is the doubt that has left us with two options, it seems to either deny Christ or to settle for the long defeat of spiritual apathy. And if you're like me today, I don't want to settle for those two options. I don't want to deny Christ, but man, it's so hard when things are looking like this. And I don't want to settle for spiritual apathy. I don't want to settle for a moralistic deism. I don't want to settle for a religion with, that lacks the power thereof. I want something real. I want to follow the true and the living God. But man, it's getting hard when I look around me and there's a disconnect between what I believe about Jesus, what I believe about God, and what I see in the world around me. Asaf is wrestling with these questions and he notices their seriousness. He says, man, if I were to speak thus, it, it would be akin to a betrayal. There's two things we tend to do with doubt in church. We either demonize or minimize. If Some of you may have come from church experiences where your doubts were demonized. And the pastor said, just believe as if the doubts would go away with a self-help affirmation. And you were demonized for doubting and your doubtings weren't taken seriously. But some of us, we tend to minimize our doubts. We never really decide to confront them. We, we, we put them to the side as if they're not really that serious. But doubts are serious. Asaf, he's admitting, hey, listen, if I were to speak these things aloud, it's a serious thing. So let's not demonize our doubt. Let's not minimize our doubt. But let's take it seriously so that we can confront our doubt and really wrestle with what we're seeing in the world and what we believe about God. And this is what Asaf is going to invite us to do. The question is, how does Asaf do it? How does he face his doubts? And ironically, he does the only thing he knows how to do, and he goes to the very person he's doubting. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Let's pause right there real quick. Verse 16, let's pause. He said, when I thought about this, when I, when, I, when I try to consider the ramifications of my doubts, he does the first thing that I think we need to begin to learn how to do when faced with doubts. He's humble enough to admit 
that he cannot be his own salvation in this matter. He's humble enough to admit that the answer he's seeking is not going to come from within, but from without. They're called the big questions for the reason, the questions of the problem of evil and suffering, the questions that are raging inside us as we speak during this season. They're the big questions for a reason. And so what we have to admit, if these are big questions, and certainly the answer must lie outside of myself rather than within, because I'm limited, I'm finite, I have flaws, I, I misinterpret things, I, I don't have it all together, so I must be humble enough to admit I need help. And it's at that, this admission, Asaf is able to do the next thing. He said, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Asaf, as he's wrestling, as he's doubting, does the only thing a good Israelite knows how to do. He goes to the sanctuary. If you study your Old Testament, we know the sanctuaries where God has placed his presence. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, that's where God has placed his name, his personal presence. And so Asaf says, I'm going to go to that place where heaven and earth meet, where God sits in thrones. I'm going to take up my questions with him. The answer the, the beginning of an answer, at least, to wrestling with the doubts we're facing in the dark nights of our soul is to bring our doubts to the living God. If we believe He's a living God, then He must be a person we can communicate with. And if He's a person we can communicate with, then He's a person we can ask questions of. And so, the thing to do as we're wrestling with our doubts is not to isolate in our doubt but to go to the presence of God. And then something happens to Asaf in the presence of God. He says he's able to discern their end. In the presence of God, God gives Asaf divine perspective. He reminds Asaf that history has what's in Greek called a telos, an end. He reminds Asaf that God is not a distant, absent God who doesn't care about the world, but it's a God who's working in the world. He reminds Asaf that he actually has plans, and though those plans might not be relevant, might not have bubbled to the surface of history, does not mean God is not working in history. He discerns their end. God gives Asaf divine perspective, and it's in this divine perspective where the doubts Asaf is facing are reoriented around the hope he possesses in God. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Here's now Asaf. He's speaking about the wicked, about the evil he's facing. He says, surely you set them in slippery places. Notice now it's reversed. Asaf is no longer with his feet slipping. It's the wicked with their feet slipping. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. But then he has to admit something. God, when, when I was facing these things, my heart was grieved. And I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will be my counsel and you will be my guide. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Asaph gets a picture of the end. He, his doubts, his fears, his questions are put into divine perspective. And he's reminded that God is moving and working the world. He is going about a purpose and plan to redeem his people. God is on the move. And what he's reminded of is that God's going to deal with evil. That the suffering we see around us, that you see in your personal life and in our world around us, in your cities, in your communities, in your families, that God is not going to let those things go unanswered. That God will indeed hold evil to account. God indeed will hold those who perpetuate injustice to account. And matter of fact, while you might feel like you're on a slippery place, you're actually on a firm foundation because you've put your hope in Christ. And it's actually those who put their hope in themselves and injustice. It's them who are on a slippery place. Asaf, all of a sudden, he's able to start to worship. But before he begins to worship, he admits, God, when I was doubting, whew, I was a little out of my mind. And I love the admission because sometimes the doubt makes us feel like we're going out of our minds. It begins to make us feel like we're losing our sense of self. We're losing our sense of identity. We're losing our sense of a sure foundation. But I love the words of Asaf because what Asaf does is he admits that his doubts had begun to affect who he thought he was. But then by doing that, he's able to worship and praise and say, but God, you show me who you truly are. So now I know who I truly am. And the doubts of Asaf become now become the purpose and the praises of Asaf. The, the very fears and angers and anxiety Asaf had when he saw the wicked becomes a very important opportunity by which Asaf gets to praise God. Asaf is no longer doubting, though he doesn't get an answer. That's important. Asaf doesn't begin to doesn't get an answer, but he doesn't. His doubts are still dealt with because he receives perspective. Answers, they they serve a purpose in the moment, but divine perspective allows us to deal with all our doubts because it puts it within the story of God and it reminds us that we actually have a hope. Revelation 21 says this in verse 3. This is St. John speaking in his revelation. He says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God promises his divine presence. Verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he sat on his throne and said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. John, like Asaph, gets a picture of the end. And for us Christians, that end is the return of Christ and new creation. And though we're seeing suffering um, in our midst, though we're wrestling with doubt, 
We have hope beyond hope. We have something to cling to in the midst of doubt. And it's actually that hope that empowers us to live as if the new creation has already come. Yes, we have doubts. Yes, we have fears. But in God's presence, in His divine presence, He opens our eyes to see that He is not gone. He is not absent, but He's been right there with us all along. The rest of the psalm, Asaf praises extolling the virtues of God, extolling how good He is and how secure He is in God's sure foundation. To be honest, I wish I could give you the direct answer to your doubt today, but I can't. Life is too grand and life is too mysterious for simple answers. But divine perspective puts those grand questions within the story of God and gives us the strength and the courage and the hope and the fortitude to begin to continue to take one step after the other, though we don't get all the answers, though we don't know how it's all going to work out, we know that there's an end. And in that end, when Christ returns, there'll be no more weeping, no more mourning, death will be no more. And what Christ began in His death and His resurrection will be brought to conclusion at His return. And so we look forward. The Christian is a person who learns how to look forward so they can stare down today. And this is what Asaf is teaching us. Through his own journey through the dark night of the soul, he shows us the bright river of God. And that bright river is the hope that Christ is returning and that there is an end to this story. So what are we to do? How for those of us wrestling with doubts, how for those of us who are dealing with the dark night of the soul, how for those of us who seem to have lost our first love, how do we begin to learn to cultivate that first love again in our hearts after we experience the dark night of the soul or even during the dark night of the soul. Well, I think Asafi, he gives us three spiritual practices to help us weather the dark night of the soul, to help us keep that ember of flame, that, that first love that we have, to not let it go out entirely, but to like kindling in a fire amidst the rain, though the rain beats against, if you keep feeding that fire, it will stay ablaze. So what are the spiritual practices Asaf gives? Well, number one, he teaches us that we must wrestle with our doubts in the presence of God. And for us as Hope Brooklyn, that means in the presence of this church family. That means in the presence of this community. We are the body of Christ. That means we're Christ incarnate to one another. We are Christ present to one another. And so the doubt is not an isolated event to go through. Doubt is a place to come to my community and say, hey, listen, these are the questions I'm facing. These are the things I'm wrestling with. Could any of you give me divine perspective? We are to wrestle with our doubts in the presence of God, which means we're to wrestle with our doubts in the presence of our faith community. Number two, Asaf teaches us that our doubts must be turned into fervent prayer. I know that sounds like an old Christian cliche, but if we believe God is living and active and present and close, then we must believe that He's also willing to hear our doubts and our prayers. When's the last time you prayed through your doubts? When's the last time you were silent in the presence of God with your questions? It's in that space that God begins to bring divine perspective. And lastly, number three, Asaf doesn't settle for answers. He teaches us to desire divine perspective. In our instantaneous, instant culture, 
We want answers and we want them now. We want the answers to life's deepest questions to be a Google search away. However, life doesn't work like that. And certainly God doesn't work like that. And so we must humbly say, God, even if you gave me the answers, I probably still wouldn't understand them. But God, would you give me perspective? Would you allow me to place my doubts, my concerns, and my questions into your story so that I don't lose the flame of my first love, but even in the dark night of the soul, it can still grow a bit brighter? We're going to close in a moment. I'm going to pray. But I have one last piece of good news for you. In the dark night of the soul, you are not alone. See, I think the issue we can have with Asaf's story is that Asaf is the one who comes into the presence of God. And so I think for many of us, that might signal to us that we have to do something to escape this dark night of the soul in our own power and in our own strength. But you're not alone. Christ is present with you in the dark night of the soul by the power of His Spirit, but also He experienced the dark night of the soul. Matter of fact, Peter, one of His disciples, reflecting on the dark night of the soul, reflecting on his Savior's dark night of the soul. He begins to reflect on Jesus' betrayal. He begins to reflect on his unjust beating, persecution, and crucifixion. And Peter, talking to people, he's talking to slaves in this passage. He's talking to people who knew a thing or two about oppression and injustice, who knew a thing or two between a disconnect between who God was and their experience. He begins to speak to them, and what he begins to point them to is not to something they need to do, but to some, something Christ has already done. He says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, when he was reviled, a.k.a. when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus, facing his own injustice, facing his own dark night of the soul, he, he knew that he was on a mission from the Father. He understood there was an end. And so because of that, he was able to entrust himself to him who judges justly, to God, the Father, who judges justly, who will exalt the righteous and who will deal with evil and those who participate in it. Jesus' exaltation to his kingship comes through the humiliation of the cross. The dark night of the soul might be our humiliation, but at the same time, like Christ, it could serve as our exaltation and reignite our fire, passion, and flame for God. And we don't have to do it alone. Christ, who perfectly trusted in the Father, upon our confession that He is Lord, gives us His perfect righteousness. Now, this righteousness is not just Christ's moral standing, but it's His own perfect relationship with the Father that means, by the power of the Spirit, we have within us Christ's own perfect trust in Him who judges justly. And so when we face the dark night of the soul, we need not face it alone. But we can actually lean on Christ, not just as our example, like a moral example of what to do, but we can lean on Christ's very own faith in the Father to empower us and to remind us that we're not alone, that our doubts and our concerns, there's divine perspective for them, 
and that there's an end, and it's Christ's faith that actually carries us to that end. And so you need not drum up faith within yourself, but lean on Christ's faith. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for us doubting. I'm going to pray for us facing the dark night of the soul. I'm going to pray for us, those of us who have lost our first love or are losing our first love, that we would be reminded and remember that it's in the dark night of the soul that brightly flows the river of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you that you don't judge the doubting, but instead meet them with grace and mercy. Father God, your son Jesus trusted in you, him who judges justly. And because of his trust in you, he endured the dark night of his soul. Would you give us Christ's perfect trust in you? Father God, would you give us divine perspective? Father God, would you give us the strength to bring our doubts to our community? Would you give us the words to pray when we doubt and when we don't know what to believe because of what we're seeing around us? God, would you close the gap between what we believe about you and what we see so that we may not lose our first love, but instead it'll burn all the more brightly. In Christ's name, amen. Have a good Sunday, Hope Brooklyn. We love you.